Cigarettes in the coffee pot may disappear, but I will not. I'll keep my distance though. There's nowhere. So, welcome, dear listeners, to another Two Scientists podcast. Our guest today is Peter Bentley from University College London. How are you, Peter? I'm right. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah. Or, or are you supposed to thank thank me for talking to you? I don't both. Know how okay. Yes. We can we can both do that. Well, thank you for good. coming. Out. <laughs> <laughs> we start off by asking our guest uh, a little about their background, um, what they studied, and how on earth they ended up sticking to research for as long as they have done. Yes. Make it sound like it's a, a difficult trap to get out of. Uh, I guess for some people it is. <laughs> is it? Kind of, I think like it a becomes horrible, a routine. Horrible they just... sticky fly trap <laughs> that you can't tear your legs away from. But how did you get here? How did I get here? Not to Cafe Nero. <laughs> <laughs> well, research in particular. Yes. I, I'm one of these strange people. I, I think um, I, I was born to it, if you like. My, my father's a mechanical engineer and I grew up um, uh, kind of making things, do it, just just investigating things. You know, if we had a TV set, well, it would be in pieces very quickly. <laughs> and then um, I'd blown up more than one TV set. I'll tell you, it's quite dramatic blowing one up. It is a big bang and lots of smoke. Um, but you learn things, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and so my whole childhood was was really a, a series of research projects, making making robots, making gadgets, programming the little home computers that there were. And I was always interested in biological systems, so but my way of investigating them was, can I make a computer kind of behave in that way? Uh huh. And then so it was very natural for me to do a degree in uh, AI, which is what I did, artificial intelligence. And then I kind of fell into a PhD because. Well, I, the idea of working for someone in a company didn't quite fit, you know. And uh, it's just the way my brain's wired. So I, for for the last 20 years, I've been at UCL and, and I've had a research group. And, and uh, David Bazanta was one of my students. And Arturo was another. Yes, Arturo <laughs> was another. Um, and um, uh, yeah, I... A lot of the time, I was actually making a living off popular science books and things like that. I wasn't even getting a salary. Oh, wow. Um, but I, I did it because I love it, because I'm, I'm a curious soul, and, and this, is, this is what sort of satisfies me, you know. I, I, for, for me, well, what is more significant that, than to sort of enrich the knowledge of mankind and womankind and everybody kind and as... Um, you know, it, it's, I don't want to get too grandiose about it, but, you know, for, for me, it, it's about that there's a tree of knowledge and, okay, maybe we're just adding a few little twigs on the end each time. But sometimes those twigs grow into entire branches, you know, and, and you never quite know what's going to become very significant in the future. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm lucky enough that over 20 years, yeah, some of the areas I've, I've worked on have grown into fields, you know. Some of the, the artificial immune systems grew into a whole field. Uh, we, we started some EvoDevo stuff for, co- for computers, mm-hmm. and that's grown into a full subfield as well. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I think uh, nice to achieve something now and again that's useful. So you're one of those people who make sure the rest of us don't get a decent salary because you actually do it for the love of it. (laughs) 
Um, That's not true in any way whatsoever. I, no. I, I don't speak for anyone else's salary. So, <laughs> uh, as I say, I, I frequently made a living through other sources. And, and um, if, if I, I recommend you to make use of your brain and, and by all means make cash doing consultancy and other stuff. Um, but keep science science you know don't mm-hmm. don't dilute it don't don't sell out I mean I I very much have always uh, I felt science communication is very important mm-hmm. which is why I spent a lot of effort writing books and, and doing stuff in magazines and things and when they want to publicize my work I go to some lengths to make sure it's understandable but but you know there are there are some who become science presenters and in order to be a, a personality, they dilute the science. And I, uh-huh. I think that's a cop-out, you know? I think if you're going to do science communication properly, um, it's up to the communicator to, to uh, find the right metaphors, the right analogies, to, to make it real, to make it relevant to the audience. Don't, don't assume your audience is stupid, because they're not stupid. If, if they don't understand what you're saying, you're not saying it clearly enough. Yep. And I, I think that's what I've learned over the years, and, that, and that's why I think it's very important. You know, if you assume your audience is dumb, everybody does that, you're going to force them to become dumb, and that's just, that is dumb. Yep. Why, why don't we assume they're clever, and, you know, we all learn something. I, I don't know everything that every every other discipline knows, so if, if, if everybody just treats everybody as adults when they do science communication, then we all learn. I think that's the way it should be. Yeah. I have to say, I guess Richard Wingate just recently said something very similar in the sense that um, we assume because everybody's a scientist, we all automatically understand what the others are doing, and that's blatantly not true. Oh, no, of course it's not. I mean, every time I work with a new biologist, I'm learning a new terminology, and and often the the words completely overlap with my own. When I work with a neuropathologist, and he started, he said, look down this microscope at at this biopsy and and look at the systems. Well, I'm a computer scientist, you know, a system has a very specific meaning to me, or or processes, I think he used. Look at the Mm -hmm. processes, not systems. Look at the processes, and... um, you know, a, a process has a very distinct meaning to a computer scientist. Yeah. Uh, to us, they mean branchy things. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, this, and to a biologist, it's branchy things. And he, he meant look at look at the look at the branchy things coming off these neurons. Mm-hmm. And, and then again, you know, I was trying to quantify these things, and I was asking him, okay, so exactly how are you measuring the 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 uh, the branchiness of it? And, and he said, oh, well, uh, we're taught to uh, to kind of look at how spidery they are. And I, I said, what? Well, I mean, exactly how do you measure that then? <laughs> and they don't, you know, it's, it's purely a kind of instinctive mm-hmm. thing. And again, for, for us, that's that's not going to work, you know. We, we actually have to measure these things. Um, but... but yeah, over the years I've, I've worked with many, many different scientists of different disciplines and I find it fascinating that every discipline, uh, not just has different terminologies, but we all, we actually approach science in, in uh, I, well, how do I phrase this, we, we're all scientists, we all follow the scientific method, but the way we conduct our experiments, the way we perform our analyses differs. Um, and it has to differ because we all have different different degrees to which we can get data and different difficulties of getting data. You know, uh, there are some discipline, many disciplines in biology where it may be three or four years of 
very hard work to get just a few data points. Mm -hmm. And from that, they have to extrapolate some fairly significant things. And for us to extrapolate some, you know, some rather interesting shaped curves from, I don't know, 20, 20 data points, we, we were, no way were we doing it, you know? We were thinking, oh my goodness, there's no, we, we, want, to, we want to have 20 million data yes. points before we extrapolate those kind of curves. But they can't get them, you mm -hmm. know? And, and um, so our, our expertise differs, uh, um, but that's a, a very interesting thing because it, it actually means that some disciplines come up with very, very clever experimental methods, which which we can make use of for our own uh, our, our own uh, research. And likewise, some of the things that we do using a lot of data, they can actually make use of as well. We, we can show them how to get more data or how to, you know, if we start doing modeling, we can actually generate data for them. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things you just mentioned, which is kind of interesting, is the idea that actually there are a lot of ground rules that are the same for scientists. And I wonder if this is this was helpful for your book. Um, is it Why Shit Happens? Mm -hmm. The science of a, was it a really bad day or a very mm -hmm. bad day? Because yeah, you go through one, multiple yeah. different disciplines, but you, you're yes. explaining each one incredibly well. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the, the bottom line is science is science, you know, we, and we're, we're a cynical bunch of people. We, if you're a proper scientist, um, and we all aspire to be proper scientists, and very few of us achieve the ideal but what we aspire to be is objective, um, cynical. Uh, this may make us sound very cold-hearted, but we're not at all. We're very passionate, we're very creative people. And we have to be creative and passionate because, as you were saying before, we, you, you have to have the drive to keep going through hard times. You have to be creative enough to figure out how on earth you, you do the experiments or how on earth do you get the answers that you want. And you need a lot of creativity to do that. But and this is the difficult thing, you, you have to be able to, as much as possible, put your ego to one side. Because when the data comes back and it says, Peter, you've been an idiot, your idea is completely <laughs> wrong in number form, you, you have to be able to say, oh shit, you know, I, I've, um, maybe I'm not as clever as I thought I was, I'm going to have to revise this idea and, and rethink it. Rather than, of course I'm right, the data's wrong, I'm going to keep, keep plugging away until I get the data I want, you know. That's not the way a scientist does it. Um, so putting your ego to one side is, is very difficult. Um, it's, it's one of the things I, I really had to learn. I, I was a stubborn little boy growing up. I like to think I was right. And one of the biggest lessons I, I had to learn was uh, my own fallibility, I suppose. Um, and I think that's a very healthy thing to learn. We, we all need to know um, and I, it's a it's a common saying, but but you know the, the more the more you do, the more the, or the the more you know, the more you realise how little you, mm -hmm. you actually know. And um, this is this is very true now. And I have to say, it, because I work in computer science and, and AI is so dramatically fashionable right now, um, I'm, I'm I'm finding this daily you know there there are conferences that used to just have three or four hundred people and, and these days they, they get four thousand people show uh -huh. up to them um, and then we've got 
more than a hundred of such conferences. It, it's it's got to the point now where you know I, I got my PhD twenty years ago and I knew the field. I knew everyone in the field. I could pretty much talk to everyone in the field. They knew me. Um, today, I don't even know everyone in my department. <laughs> you know. Um, and the amount of people doing stuff, the amount of papers that come out every single day, that it's not humanly possible to keep up with it. You think uh, someone could come up with an app for that? Uh, well, <laughs> it, uh, we're, de we're actually developing uh, uh, analyses that are, allow us to um, uh, try and make sense of these things. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, there's, this is another branch of AI. Can you, uh, can you analyze free text and actually uh, come up with consolidated kind of uh, useful information from from all this stuff. So speaking of which, tell us about um, any one of your current projects. Um, well, let's see. Are you um, allowed to? Is that like children? You um, can't pick a favorite. Well, uh, I, oh, I can I can mention some. I mean, so some some I can only hint at because um, I'm now CTO of a, a company as well, um, and so that in broad terms, the company is uh, both providing solutions for large multinational corporations. So it, it kind of does analyses, modeling, prediction to help them understand their large companies. Um, all of those using the similar kinds of methods that uh, David or Arturo might be using for analyzing uh, biological systems, but we can do it for business as well. Mm -hmm. um, we also do. Uh, what else are we doing? Well, we're looking at we're looking at creating more interesting intelligent solutions for the consumer market. But I'm not allowed to tell you too much more. Okay. So uh, I can only hint at such things. Um, but in terms of my research group at UCL, uh, oh, lots, lots of interesting stuff. So um, we're looking at neuroplasticity and is, is there, exactly how does uh, the ability of the brain to rewire itself under certain, certain circumstances, how does that help learning? Mm -hmm. And if it does help learning, how could you exploit that in a computing sense? And uh, pretty much no one else is looking at that, and I, which I find surprising. Uh -huh. But it's also, I also find it surprising that no one really understands it either in biological systems. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, a, it's a slightly tricky one to look at. Yeah. Uh, but we're having a go. Um, <laughs> uh, what else are we doing? We uh, another uh, another one is we we've been looking at um, uh, actually using neural networks for an intelligent autopilot system. Ooh. So existing autopilot systems in aircraft, they pretty much turn themselves off as soon as anything unexpected, even a bit of turbulence, mm -hmm. they just turn themselves off. And so the pilot has to be alert all the time, uh, just in case the autopilot gets a bit nervous. Yep. But actually, so we've, we've shown with the right methods, you can create really very effective AI methods that um, can handle very dramatic circumstances, including losing engines, emergency landings, uh, taking off in crazy conditions. Mm -hmm. um, you can get a computer to do all of that. Um, so we're not proposing that they should do all of that, but mm -hmm. what we are proposing is um, a computer can be a lot more help than it currently is. Um, because, you know, um, there are a lot of issues with, with uh, uh, pilots needing to constantly be up to date 
uh, aircraft are very difficult things to, to fly and the, the training has to be constantly uh, uh, current for these pilots mm -hmm. and it's, it's a difficult job for them um, and it, it's difficult for them to maintain that level of alertness that they need to which as an aside has repercussions for these this upcoming trend for um, self-driving cars uh -huh. because it's all very well imagining that you can have a, a, a car that will drive itself but will relinquish control to the driver should anything dramatic happen mm -hmm. as it will have to for, for several decades you come to Europe there is no way a self-driving car is going to cope with the, the streets of Europe or India or China it's too yep. chaotic so it has to relinquish control to the driver when anything dramatic happens. But guess what? We are not trained as drivers to, to be in a constant state of alertness so that as soon as the car relinquishes control to us, we can take over. This is how pilots of aircraft are trained. And they go through a lot of training to do that. Mm -hmm. But we're not. And so there is no way a self-driving car would be safe for us to drive unless we all take new driving tests yep. where it, it incorporates what do you do when your self-driving car says hey take control now something's happening otherwise we're, we're all going to be reading books and, and we're all going to get killed in, in car accidents so this kind of happened with the tests yeah, recently yeah yeah i'm not going to specifically <laughs> i'm not going to specifically go into it but it's a real issue mm. and, and it hasn't been addressed um so anyway it, it's, this is what we're doing with aircraft, and I actually think aircraft is a much better, it's a much better application for this kind of thing. It, they're already very safety conscious, they're full of sensors, uh, there aren't people running out in front of aircraft in the sky. Um, you, you, aircraft know where they are quite precisely with respect to other aircraft and the land, so it, it's a problem that's, that's better for, for this kind of technology to start with. Uh, we, we've also looked at recently um, modeling um, the transition from hunter-gatherers to agriculture in human societies and why that yeah. transition happened We're in collaboration with a geneticist and archaeologist. Um, this, this is interesting because um, it turns out, I didn't know this until we did the project, but it turns out that um, hunter-gatherers are very healthy people. Uh, mm -hmm. They get lots of really good vitamins and minerals, they get lots of exercise, of course. Uh, they tend to live in fairly small groups, so they don't have so many diseases. As soon as you start farming, um, as the, the archaeological and the genetic records show, as soon as they started, firstly they weren't very good at it, so mm -hmm. they, their vitamins were very limited, they were very unhealthy. There were more of them living together, they had lots of diseases. So actually the first, during that first transition, people were far less healthy um, and plus it also had a it, it was the first transition in terms of our notion of ownership so you tend to find that in hunter-gatherer societies and you still see this with the sort of aborigines today they treat land as a shared resource no one can own land it's it's something you respect and you you share it, you, you pass it around if you like, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's a very important part of your environment. You can't own land. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you start farming it, then you fence it off and you say, well, these are my crops on my land, you keep off it. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're living nearby, you start to get very territorial. And yeah, this is the beginning of, of human 
territorial battles and, and, and thus came our civilization and this history of, of violence, you know. I'm not saying we didn't have violence before that, <laughs> but this is a new, a whole new way of being violent towards each other. Get off my land, it's my food. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and that transition came about also. So if you run the models, you would think, why in the world would we ever stop being hunter-gatherers? We were healthier, we, we, uh, at least we could get away from anyone who wanted to kill us, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but somehow, if it, if it takes hold, there are real advantages to living together. And once, once you're good enough at it, uh, doing agriculture does start to become advantageous. You can, you can support larger numbers of, of humans together. But certainly the models are interesting and they show that it, it's not a, not a foregone conclusion that you would, even if the land is supported, that, that you would transition from a hunter-gatherer society to an agricultural one. Um, it's a kind of random, yeah, once in a while you might do it. And if you do do it, once in a while you might actually survive at doing it. And eventually, you know, I, I guess it's almost like the evolution of, of, of life. It's, it's eventually the survivors, the ones that are best at it, get to pass, pass on that knowledge. It's, it's, it's a kind of cultural evolution, if you like. Yeah. But, but um, So this was a fascinating model that, that uh, one of my PhD students was doing. So, given the diversity of projects you have, how do you choose new ones? You well, seem to have... Yeah, I mean, I... I uh, so my group's called the Digital Biology Group, mm -hmm. um, and I like... Um, I like to kind of view the natural world through the eyes of a computer scientist, since that's what I am, mm -hmm. and those are my eyes. Um, and, and I... Um, I guess I view a lot of these systems, whether they're human populations or whether they're uh, tumors developing or whether they're brains rewiring themselves, I view them as information processing systems. Mm -hmm. Because, um, uh, well, uh, you know, I, I'm gonna, I'll give you a long lecture about why, but I, I won't go into that. So uh, I, I think you can view them in that way. Um, we, we are, all of these systems are collections of smaller entities that uh, transform information in some respect. Um, transform themselves in doing that transformation, but they, they are storing, manipulating, and, and in many respects building, building some kind of information structures, often, often morphological structures. And I find that very interesting, that um, the natural world is very good at creating information, manipulating it, storing it in highly efficient ways, in, in contrast to the way we do it with, with computer systems, where we, we've, we've made it terribly simple, you know. We, Shannon was a very clever guy, Claude Shannon. He created information theory. But what he did was, to make it understandable, was he, he made it as simple as possible. And the simplest kind of information is there or not there. Yep. You know, zero or one. Yep. Um, and binary is a very nice thing. It allows us to do a lot of calculation, a lot of proofs, a lot of, uh, you know, all of, all of our transmission and cryptography and, and security is all based on this simple notion of information. But it's as simple as you can get. Mm -hmm. And you look at biological systems, 
everything is about shape, you know. It's, it's the morphology of a protein, the way it's folded, or, or the, the shape of a, a DNA molecule mm -hmm. or, or RNA. It's about how things fit together yeah. that encodes information. And, and also the context of it, so it doesn't mean the same thing at the same time. Um, so it's a tremendously rich way, a tremendously powerful way of, of storing information and manipulating information, which we're, we're barely understanding. Mm -hmm. um, but it, how useful if we could understand it, you know? Not yep. only could we help each other from a medical perspective, but tremendously powerful from an information technology perspective. Um, we could have far more powerful computing, far more, uh, far, far superior ways of storing information, accessing it, um, far more robust and, and uh, damage tolerant. So the, I, I found this fascinating, um, and, and that's why projects, getting back to your question, projects that, that seem to relate to this in some way, and, and that seem to be uh, relatively unexplored, I suppose. I, I like to think of research uh, as a bit like being a surfer, you know, you want to be on the crest of the wave. Uh -huh. You don't want to be paddling behind because you're too slow and you're not going to get anywhere. You don't want to be too, too fast because you're too far ahead because you might wipe out. It might be the wrong wave. You might, you might have just got it wrong. Mm -hmm. but if you get it right, if you, you know, you, you develop the skill um, you can spot it as it comes, and yep. you, you surf just on the crest, then it can really get you places. And, and I think that's what research is like. So I'm always looking for that perfect wave in research, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, it, you know, you get an intuition, this is going somewhere. I can see where things are going. Yep. A few people have tried, they didn't make it, but I can see this one. This one's the right one. And that's what I try and do. Okay. So at some stage we hand over to our guests to ask questions and today we have David and our friend Edward. So, you know, wake up. <laughs> We've been sitting in there drinking hot chocolate. Um, you were saying about um, turning biology into information theory. How do you, I, that, that bit, I, I know a bit of biology and I know a bit of computing, but I don't think I can make that translation very readily. When I see, look at biology, I see biology. So is that something you've learned or something that you... It, it's something I've worried about for a long time. And, and um, uh, in, in the more theoretical sense, um, in, in spending many years working with many different disciplines and, and trying to use conventional computers and conventional information theory to model these actually rather different systems. As you say, we, we've, got, we've got our computers on one side, we've got biological systems on the other, and actually they're not that compatible. You know, biological systems are very parallel, very stochastic, very distributed. Um, they store information in different ways. They're often very unpredictable. And that's in complete contrast with our computers, which are designed to be predictable. They're not stochastic, they're deterministic. Can you explain what you mean by stochastic? They're random. They're, 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 I mean, that's, that's basically it. A, a, a biological system, uh, because it, it's made of real stuff, it, it has a lot of randomness. You cannot predict. Whilst we know our blood always flows around our, our veins and arteries, um, uh, 
we can't predict exactly which blood cell is going to go to which part of us. But the point is we've got enough of them mm -hmm. that they're going to slosh around and they're all going to get to the right places in the end. And that's how biology does it, you know. We've got enough neurons. We don't know exactly which neuron is going to be firing as I say these words and you're listening and you're remembering some of these words. We can never predict which neurons, even if we could map your entire brain, we couldn't predict which neuron you're going to use for the memory you're storing right now. But we don't need to because you've got enough of them and they all kind of, it doesn't slosh around so much, but it fires with little electrical impulses and there's a bit of sloshing going on too. And, and it, it kind of works, you know, that randomness is, is exploited as part of the solution. In contrast with our technology, we often view randomness as part of the problem, not part of the solution. And we, we worry about it. Oh my goodness, what if something random happens and it breaks? Mm -hmm. And I think that's completely the wrong way of looking at it. So for a long time, I, I thought about, well, what if there's a better way, a, be, a better kind of computer? And, and yeah, I, I've, after using conventional computers for many years, the incompatibilities become very clear. You, as we all know who do it, um, it can take a long time, you know. So some of our models on computers are actually very slow. They're many, many orders of magnitude slower to simulate a biological system than, than real time. Unless we simplify it to the extent that it's really not quite the same. Um, so why is that? Well, it's because of these incompatibilities. Um, and I thought some years ago, well, wouldn't it be cool if we actually had a computer that worked more like a biological system that we could then use to support all these these things. And then we could think about in terms of a more formal mathematical sense, if we can if we can construct a, an actual computer architecture that we can write code for and write models in, um, can we then think of this as a formal system? If, if, if we translate a biological system into this computer, can we then formalize it? And so, yeah, I, I developed my own computer architecture, my own, uh, I call it a systemic computer. Still going, yeah, the, David may remember it from the old days. I've been doing it for, I don't know, more than a decade now. And uh, many PhD students have, have worked on it with me. We've, we've done different um, hardware versions as my own programming language and, and uh, many different models have been being performed on it and I'm afraid it's, it's an ongoing problem I wish I could say yeah it's all solved now it's, it's not <laughs> solved um, it, it is you're quite right to say it's it's very difficult um, to formalize uh, biological systems in this way um, and we're still we're still understanding that I mean another example is I had a PhD student called um, uh, Navni Bala and many many years ago as a master's I, I set in one of my impossible projects I like to set projects that I, I suspect might be impossible but I, if anyone's daring enough to have a go at them I know they're probably pretty good so Navni decided he would have a go at, at this project which I thought might be impossible and the project was imagine you have a bucket full of Lego bricks but the Lego bricks are shaped in a funny way such that if you shook the bucket they would self-assemble they would stick to each other and and become a desired form and so the problem becomes what shape do you make those Lego bricks such that when you add energy they glue themselves together to become that desired form and Navni did his masters and then did his PhD 
and has now spent many years as a postdoc <laughs> still solving this problem. <laughs> he's probably got further than most people in the world. Um, and he's now at Harvard and he's worked with many famous people. Um, I can't say he's completely solved it, but, it, but he's, he's getting there. He started with two-dimensional pieces that he uses 3D printers to, to generate and things like genetic algorithms to evolve the shapes of. Um, he's, he has moved to 3D ones now. Um, so, um, uh, but I, I bring this example up because if you, if you contrast it with what's going on in the natural world, the most similar analogy to this problem is molecules. It's just which atoms glue themselves together to form more complex molecular shapes. And that's, that's the level of our technology, you know? That's how useless we actually are. We can't even assemble things as complicated as, as you know, complex molecules, and let alone things like viruses, which are really complex things, mm -hmm. let alone bacteria, let alone cells, let alone multicellular organisms, let alone complex multicellular organisms, and so on. So we are about, oh, I don't know, three and a half billion years behind <laughs> biology. And this is why when people come to me and they talk about artificial intelligence, say, oh yeah, but won't they take over the world and kill us? I, I say, well, you know, they, they are no more going to take over the world than your houseplant is, um, really. And the houseplant's got a much better chance because it can reproduce itself and survive in a real environment. Whereas anything we create, well, we're, yeah, we're three and a half billion years. And that much in terms of testing in parallel in a real environment, which we also can't do, um, that's how far behind we are. So, you know, when you view the natural world as a technology, mm -hmm. which to me it kind of is, you yeah. know, it's, it's like, it, it's like unbelievably complex compared to anything we can create. We, we are, you know, if, if you view living creatures as, as examples of high technology, um, it, it, it's, it's a technology that, that it, it constructs itself, it designs itself, it repairs itself, it, mm -hmm. it, it, it manages its own energy, um, you know, it gets the energy from the environment, it does it all in a way that's self-sustaining and doesn't harm the environment. And um, more efficient than anything we can yeah, produce. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just, just, a, just a few bits of sugar and you can power uh, organisms for, for many hours and, and you know whereas what have we been doing for years we've been burning fossilized forests and, uh, and animals actually and, and animals <laughs> um, so yeah so I, I think we have a lot to learn you have obviously I can give you a lot of projects through your career mm -hmm. and have you found any in which you thought I used Evolution, but in retrospect, maybe something else would have been better. Um, I, okay, so my background is evolution and evolutionary computation. I, I, um, you know, I've been using computers to evolve solutions to problems for, for decades, uh, um, and specifically design. I started out using uh, what we call genetic algorithms to evolve uh, novel designs for problems. I was one of the first people to do that. Um, so rather than optimizing an existing design, I, I was the, one, the first one to show that um, evolution can be very creative even in a computer. And even if there is no 
solution provided initially, evolution is quite capable. Again, it's a bit like the Lego brick idea. You give you give a genetic algorithm a bucket full of Lego bricks, it can actually figure out how many it wants, what they should look like, and it can glue them together and make a solution. Um, it's very difficult to do that in, in real physical form, but in, in, a, in a virtual way, it's quite doable. Um, so, um, it, it, evolution is a pretty good way of doing that and, and is a tremendously creative process, it's tremendously powerful. And for that kind of problem, um, I haven't seen anything as powerful. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for coming out to meet with us today. Um, yes, we look forward to seeing what great things you do with your company. Uh, well, I, I can never claim we'll ever do anything great, but we, we, <laughs> we try, you know, that's all we ever can do, we try. Or whatever you are open to, and I can't stand to think about the person I'm without. There's something else that I don't want to say unless you want me to. So if you begged and begged and screamed this... I was at a conference uh, a couple of years ago, and because evolutionary computation is my background, I, I kind of like Darwin, you know, and I kind of like uh, survival of the fittest. I, I think Darwin was probably a reasonably bright fella. And one of, one of my colleagues at the conference had a poster and he was presenting something to do with um, his idea that Darwin wasn't quite right. And he was, he was trying to argue that um, the, the phrase survival of the fittest or something like it wasn't, wasn't fully encapsulating really what happens in evolution. And I kind of felt, well, this is a little bit nitpicking, really. But uh, anyway, I, I wasn't, I was... I thought I was being very polite, <laughs> so I was standing next to the poster and uh, waiting my turn to ask questions. Someone else was asking some difficult questions, and I was nodding and smiling in agreement. And then the, that person went away, and it was my turn to ask him my questions. And before I got to open my mouth, he said to me, uh, Peter, you've been smirking all, all evening. If you don't go away, I'm going to punch you. And I said, okay. <laughs> I, I uh, hastily uh, made my retreat, but uh, later on I went and approached him and said, look, honestly, I, was, I wasn't smirking, I was just, just, uh, just uh, trying. It was my attempt at a friendly smile and it didn't quite work out, but <laughs> anyway, there you go. Uh, it's, it's the first time that I've been threatened with violence at an academic conference, but it, it may not be the last, you know. <laughs> I can be annoying sometimes. <laughs> I don't want your technology. These computer screens look funny to me. They tilt to the side and they turn upside down. And I'm breathing from under the ground. I'm not the world's most smartest guy. You know when I'm late and you know when I lie. And you know what I've been through. Suddenly I'm all alone My needs have shrunk and my ego's grown And the physics are a mess You're not even dressed The door swings open with no one inside I only came to say goodnight I can't remember what you said to do When things started going right 
want your technology These computer screens look funny to me They tilt to the side and they turn upside down And I'm breathing from under the ground You've just been listening to a Two Scientists podcast. Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle 2Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at 2Scientists.org. Thanks for tuning in. These computer screens look funny to me. They tilt to the side and they turn upside down. Now I'm breathing from under the ground. We are not trained as drivers to be alert. Oops.